the Jews were the world's first historians. In, in a world and a culture where people look to the stars and their movements, or to the cyclical turning and turning of the seasons, or to the entrails of an animal for omens, the Jews looked to God, and uniquely a God who made promises, who made a covenant, and thus they ended up looking to events, to linear history. And they created a world where the future was not simply the past recycled. And so, among other things, the Jews became master storytellers. It's part of the reason that the Hebrew Bible is full of long narratives, often expertly crafted. And 1 Samuel, which we begin a new series on today, is a prime example of this. This is a gripping story. Really, 1 and 2 Samuel together are one story. This is a story which is strange. It's realistic. It's unsanitized. But it's a wonderful piece of narrative storytelling. And I hope that we all enjoy it as we look at it. So we're here at the end of the period of the judges. That's where the time frame is. About 1050 B.C. when Samuel's born. The key thing to get is that the, the, the people of Israel are sort of stranded politically between this period of decentralized judges and the coming centralized monarchy in David, which the book is trying to get to from the beginning. And toward the end of the book of Judges, the book of Judges is the book just prior to the book of Samuel in the Jewish Bible. Toward the end, we're told four times there was no king in Israel. There was no king in Israel. And the very last line of the book of Judges says that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Is there a more relevant and modern sentiment than that? People think this stuff is new. right? Of course, we celebrate that today. That's a statement of celebration today. It's a grim judgment at the end of the book of Judges. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Everyone lived their own truth. Everyone followed their own heart. Everyone was who they were. Nobody let law or authority or tradition shape them. I mean, can't you hear them? Hey, I can't believe that in 1050 B.C., you know, you're still living in the past. We're having this discussion in 1050 B.C.? Get with it, man. Do what's right in your own eyes. Live your truth. Be yourself. This left Israel in the moral and political chaos. It eventually led to civil war. There's a high price to pay 
for denying that human beings have natures and that those natures have ends and that those ends are part of a moral order to which we are accountable that is extrinsic to us. There is a high price to pay for self-expressive individualism. And the ending of the book of Judges documents it. And so an attentive reader of the Hebrew Bible is looking for a king, someone to bring some order as the text of 1 Samuel opens. And with that, we'll make three points. They're on the back, inside of the bulletin. Baron Hannah, praying Hannah, and mother Hannah. So the story of 1 Samuel starts far away from the world of politics. There's just an ordinary man from the rural backwaters, hill country of Ephraim. He has an ordinary family of no particular social standing. Elkanah, the husband, has two wives. And why any of this is relevant to Israel's plight, no one would know. The first wife was called Hannah, which means favored. But ironically, she's not favored. She's barren. And she is a living, grieving metaphor for Israel's barrenness. That's why she's at the beginning of the book. Probably what happened here is Elkanah, seeing that Hannah was barren, took a second wife to perpetuate his line. That was common in this world. A wife named Penina or Penina, which means fruitful. Fruitful. And she was fruitful. She was fruitful. We're told she had children. And sadly, the text tells us, but Hannah had none. Hannah had none. This was a faithful family. They're a faithful family. Year after year, year in, year out, they went up to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord at a place called Shiloh, which is where the tabernacle had been since the time of Joshua. It's about 30 miles north of what is today what would become Jerusalem. Eli and his two sons were told were priests there. They're going to loom very large in the story soon. And so they would have these worship services and at the sacrificial meal, Elkanah would give portions to Penina and notice the text says and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gives a double portion because he loved her, the text says. And the Lord had closed her womb. He loves her for herself. He does not love Hannah because Hannah can give him children. So it's a very tender statement. Whatever the medical cause might be, God is viewed as the first transcendent cause the sovereign over sparrows falling, and the sovereign over wounds. Now, in Israel, barrenness was particularly heartbreaking. Because Abraham was promised a great multitude of offspring. And because they knew, of course, that the Messiah would come 
through childbearing, according to the ancient promise in Genesis 3. So to be barren in Israel was to be subject to feeling cut off from God, cut off from his purposes. It was to suffer the grief of exclusion. And this makes worshiping for Hannah a time of pain, of, of being exposed to having her wound reopened every time they gather at Shiloh. Every sacrificial service is a reminder that she has but one mouth to feed, and Peninnah has a quiver full to feed. So you could just put it in the bulletin. Right there, there's a, there's a spot in the bulletin that says, Here, Hannah remembers the Lord has closed her womb. And her rival wife, Peninnah, uses the mystery of this right, as an opportunity to mock. Text tells us she kept provoking Hannah in order to irritate her. And this went on year after year. It's really, really an astonishing level of callousness. Peninnah appears to be one of those outwardly religious types. Notice, she doesn't miss church. Yet she hides a vicious heart. She would provoke Hannah whenever they went up to the house of the Lord until she wept. Until the worship meal itself was just a bitter experience and she couldn't eat. It's important to remember, I think, that just gathering for worship itself can be a cause of grief for people. Like it's a text which should ratchet up our sensitivity. It it can be a reminder for people of what they do not have. Or what they once had. Or what they wished they had. Everybody sitting around you is carrying their own baggage, their own wounds, their own brokenness, the mystery of their own unanswered longings and prayers, their own stained and ambiguous history, and often their own sense of exclusion and marginalization. And we have to be a place, right? The love of Christ demands it, that we are a place where healing and integration can happen. But it starts, I think, with being aware that something as simple and as innocent as being married or having a spouse or the perception that someone has a certain type of marriage or a certain type of spouse or, as, or of having children or grandchildren, or economic status, or health, or friends, that having these or other goods by itself makes life hard for the Hannahs who don't have them and desperately crave them. And of course, if it needs saying, we don't ever even want to unintentionally be like Peninnah Few people, thank God, are like that. But there are many more people who celebrate their blessings in a way which can be callous to their neighbors. 
and insensitive. So Elkanah, he seems like a genuinely decent and good man. His family is devout and dysfunctional. Pretty much like every family. Sounds just about right, I think. They attend church, and then they fight. And they irritate. And they provoke each other. Not unusual. And he makes what appears to me to be an earnest but a clueless attempt to comfort his wife. Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you so downhearted? Presumably these are rhetorical questions, I would hope. I think he knows. Then he says, don't I mean more to you than ten sons? To which the answer is, no, you don't. (laughs) See, even our sincere attempts to comfort those closest to us can be like a form of narcissism. They can be very inept and clumsy. We're bad at stuff. We're bad at comforting people. So this is Hannah's plight. And it's Israel's plight in miniature. Barren with no relief in sight. So the second thing here is Hannah's praying. In verse 9, it says, Once after finishing the meal, Hannah stood up. Eli, the priest, was presiding at the Lord's house. She doesn't wait for the liturgy or rely on the priest. She goes on her own to the tabernacle complex to seek the face of the Lord. I believe she's the first woman ever to do this in Scripture. And she goes in deep anguish. The text piles up these words. It says she prays, she weeps bitterly. She figures that the sovereign Lord who closed the womb can open it. Notice the words. The text goes on to say she's in misery. She's deeply troubled. She's in great anguish. She has grief. So this is a kind of prayer that doesn't paint inside the lines. There's no, you know, conform, no bloodless conformity to the expected way of praying here. This is very desperate praying. Deep calling on to deep. Verse 15 says, she was pouring out her soul to the Lord. Now, we know that expression later from the Psalms, pouring out one's soul to the Lord. But it speaks of a gushing of interior passion. It's good to unload your distress, your bitterness, your perplexity, your anxiety, your interior passions onto God. He can handle it. He's seen a lot. Now, these emotions are not always going to be present in prayer, of course. That's true. But this posture that she's in, right, this deep sense of powerlessness and of the hopelessness of our helpless state, right? This is the place where we are well positioned to pray, right? Confident, strong people are not prayers. Prayer is a form of self-emptying. 
Which is why, part of the reason why we find it so difficult. Because we live in a culture where the self is always buffered and protected and built up. But prayer is a confession of impotence. Right? It's, it's a way of saying we are unable to make the barren fruitful. It's a reminder. I know this is simple, but it's, it's, a, it's a very crucial thing to get about prayer. It is first and foremost a reminder that we are creatures. That we don't keep ourselves alive. That we don't make food come up out of the ground. That we don't give ourselves air to breathe. That we don't give ourselves water to drink or light to see. We are creatures who cannot often bring to pass what we desire. We cannot call the things that are not into being. Prayer begins in this creaturely posture. And it begins in it because it begins and ends with God himself. This is again why modern men and women have such a difficulty with this. Because they forget that they are creatures. Here's the great paradox of prayer. It is the most important Christian action. And it is at the same time an end to our actions. It's the most important Christian action and at the same time an end to our actions. It's wholly vertical, focused above, and it is then indirectly the most potent engagement with the horizontal world around us. It's here. This is the place where human action and human will are seen as the frail things that they are. And thus in this place, mysteriously, this is the place of power in Christian existence. This place of weakness. This is where Hannah is. And so she prays. And her prayer is a vow. She makes a vow. And this is the first time that this very rich title is used to address God in the Bible. And it's on Hannah's lips. We'll see more of this next week, but this woman's pain has made her a penetrating theologian. But here she says, Lord God Almighty, or Lord of hosts. Very, very common phrase later, Hannah's the first one to use it. And so she's appealing to God as the Lord of hosts, which means the Lord or commander of armies, armies in heaven and armies on earth, armies of beings visible and invisible, Lord of dead men, right? Lord of valleys of bone, Lord of barren wombs, Lord of the resurrection, Lord God Almighty. That's who she addresses. That's the being we address in prayer. And her vow, her prayer is this, if you will only look upon your servant's misery and remember me, here again, we have a little bit of an insight into the, uh, the depth of her understanding. This is Exodus language she's using, right? Israel pleaded with God to look upon their misery, to hear their groans, and to remember and to act, and he did. And if God hears her anguish cries and gives her a son, then she says, I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. No razor will be ever used on his head. 
She's referring to this Nazarite vow where you wouldn't cut your hair and it would be a temporary vow of consecration to the Lord. Here, she's going to make it a permanent vow for her son that he be wholly consecrated to the Lord of hosts. Now, this is a remarkable vow and we should not pass over it quickly because it reveals much about Hannah. It's It shows that her grief over her barrenness is not simply from the natural desire to be a mother. It's not just she wants a baby. It's actually quite different than that. It's rooted in her love for God, for the priesthood, and for the future ministry of worship in Israel. So that with the vow she makes, at great cost, notice what she's doing in her grieving barrenness. She makes a vow in which she forfeits the right to parent the child God gives her. All the joys, all the domestic motherly joys of raising her offspring, she foregoes. He will be raised by the local priest, far away, by Eli, not by Hannah. Do you realize how radical a self-donation this is? I'm going to guess that no one in here thinks about having a child, and then for the sake of Westminster's future, giving that child to me to raise For which I'm thankful, by the way. (laughs) But uh, Hannah receives from the Lord not to give some back. She receives from the Lord to give everything back. Now her barrenness looks different. Now this is not a general infertile female problem. She doesn't want to avenge her rival or just be a mom. She wants to give a child over to God's redemptive purposes in Israel. This is a different species of mother, beloved. She is already, through these prayers, forming the prophet of the Lord. Already, through this kind of praying, forming her son. Parenting starts before conception. It starts with the formation of the kind of person you want to be and the character of your prayers for the future. This is why the book starts with Hannah. The book is about the rise of the monarchy, but it's her fidelity that gives rise to the monarchy. And she continues praying under under her breath, in her own heart, And Eli, the priest, who lacks discernment, thinks she's drunk. She clears all this up. And she finally gets this benediction from Eli, who says, Go in peace. May the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. Seemingly insignificant line, but it's actually important. There's There's a play on words here. Asking is like or related to the word Samuel in Hebrew. So Eli is saying something like this to Hannah. May God give you the Samuel that you have Samueled for. And then Hannah replies, 
May your servant find favor. That's a pun on her own name. Hannah. May your servant find favor in your eyes. She goes away. She eats. And we're told her face was no longer downcast. Nothing has happened. But it's a great relief to unburden ourselves to the Lord, to pour out our souls, our grief, our misery, our anguish, to cast our anxiety upon him. And then, you know what? Wash your face, get something to eat, leave it in his hands. Right? Having prayed, having not yet received, unassured what God would do, resting in the blessing of the priest, Hannah's grief lifts we're told. Finally, the mother Hannah. This is typical of Hebrew narrative. You get 19 verses of preparation and they give you the, they give you the outcome in one verse. The Lord remembers Hannah. She becomes pregnant. She gives birth to a son. She names him Samuel because I asked the Lord for him. Again, the play on words. Samuel, the asked for one. And just after our text, she says, I prayed for this child and the Lord has granted me what I've asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord for his whole life. He will be given over to the Lord. Right? She keeps him till he's about three, weans him and presents him to the Lord. And so barren Hannah, praying Hannah is now mother Hannah. But notice the motherhood is spiritual. It's a donation. It's a total act of self-giving to the God of Israel and to the nation. So let us, let us conclude. It's true, of course, that Hannah is an example for us in her grief and in her prayer, in her praying. But she's only an example for us up to a point. Right? It would be a mistake. It would be a serious error to conclude simply, you know, you should pray like Hannah and the Lord will reverse your afflictions. That is not the lesson of the text. There are plenty of other barren women in Israel who didn't have their prayers answered. Hannah is not typical. She is unusual, which is why she and no other woman is at the front end of the book of Samuel. And her story is important Because she understands that God's story is the story. That Israel's story is the narrative that matters. Now, I've often said this in Sunday school classes and elsewhere, but we we moderns habitually read the Bible for what we can get out of it. And I think this is a sort of subtle, insidious thing that goes on here. It assumes that God is a player, a big one for sure, in our narratives. But our narratives remain the centerpiece. Hannah understands this differently. Notice, she is not consumed with how God fits into her life story. She knows that our stories are to be taken up into his story. That's what baptism is, right? We just said to Molly, your narrative is now subsumed into the narrative of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and his coming again in glory. 
Baptism takes your narrative and places it into God's narrative. And people who grasp this do not seek first and foremost to get stuff out of the text as if the text were there to serve us. We seek to get ourselves into the text. I always tell people, don't don't worry about what you can get out of the text. Get yourself into the text. Like Get caught up into the story. You'll get stuff out of it eventually. So what's happening here with Hannah then? Well, Hannah's the latest, she's the, the, latest ver- the latest embodiment of the barren mother motif, which goes back to Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel. She's going to give birth to Samuel, who's like a new patriarch in Israel. Samuel, after a little detour through Saul, will lead to David. And ultimately, this story of the miraculously given child goes through John the Baptist's Mother Elizabeth. And it ends with Mary, the virgin, who, like Hannah, found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Hannah is very much a type or a picture of Mary. Mary gives birth to a son who she gave back, wholly consecrated to the Father's mission. That son, our Lord, is the greater Samuel, the greater David. And he is barren, disobedient Israel's deliverer. And he is our deliverer. It's because of that one, Mary's child, that you will receive comfort in your grief. It's because of that one that I can assure you, he will in his own mysterious way make your barrenness fruitful. He will turn your sorrows into joy in the resurrection. And that's where this text provides the comfort for the people of God. And his being born of the virgin, right, as with Samuel's being born of Hannah, is a sign That salvation is wholly God's mighty, omnipotent, gracious deed. It's an impossible thing to be saved. It's made possible by the Lord of hosts, the Almighty One who heard Hannah, but who finally fulfills his word in the gospel text that came to Mary this morning. That God is the God of Abraham. We sang that as the first hymn this morning because there's a deep connection between Hannah's faith and Abrahamic faith and true saving faith in Jesus Christ. They all believe in a God who gives life to the dead and calls into being the things that are not. You are baptized into that God. And that means you're baptized into his story, into that narrative. And that means you're called again To believe the one who was born of a virgin mother, a virgin womb, and raised from the dead, a virgin tomb, to make our barren lives fruitful. This is how we read these Old Testament narratives, seeing that they point us always to Jesus Christ. 
as the fulfillment of all the promises of God. Right? The one given by the Father to raise us out of our despair up into his favor. Believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of Mary, the Son of Israel, the hope of Hannah. Amen.